What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Um, just before we start this podcast, I would just like to say, if anybody's interested in any coaching services from Tom Schwartz, then please check out the link in the description, or you can go to Tim Man Coach and inquire about coaching there. Enjoy the podcast. Right. Hi guys, welcome back to The Running Podcast. Today we are joined by Josh, our writer, and also someone you may be familiar with, it is Coach Tom Schwartz. Do you, do you like being called Coach? Is that is that what you prefer? Yeah. Is that the preference? That's right. Don't call me by first name. None of the coaches in track and field should be called by their first name. You don't call any of your football coaches by their first name, do you? Exactly. Right? No, you call him by, you either call him coach or Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so or whatever. All right. You know, the one thing that I, big beef I have is that we make our sport into an amateur sport when we call coaches by their first name. Well, yeah. It's way too familiar. You don't call your, your uh, school teachers by their first name. Hey, Joe, how's it going? No, you don't. Mr. You know, whatever you say out of respect it's not that we're trying to pound our chest but i just want to make our i want to make our sport a top tier sport not some amateur sport yeah it's something okay. that it's something actually that we don't do enough of it probably in the uk it's something that's quite um it's obviously in culture in the us in the uk it's not really unless of course your coach is your teacher at school anyway you probably um you probably would be expected to call your coach by your first name, but I, you, you know, I quite like I quite like the way you guys do it. Well, it's not very common, and it wasn't common before I came along. And I couldn't stand the fact that people are calling Mark Wetmore, a coach here at Colorado, Mark, as if they're friends. I'm like, he's your coach. He's highly knowledgeable, highly experienced. He deserves respect. Jerry Schumacher, Pete Julian of the Nike you know uh team they deserve respect they're really good at what they do they've invested a huge amount of time uh i think they deserve respect yeah i 100 percent agree and that sort of links on to the first thing i actually wanted to speak to you about is you obviously influence a lot of people uh with co- coaching methodology as well as people who follow tin man as tin man elite um and obviously being a runner um previously as well I was just wondering who have your like biggest inspirations been in life and also through coaching um, and sort of where do you get your ideas from and sort of methodologies? You know, I'm an eclectic type of guy. I uh, look for the best methods and I borrow a little bit, I borrow here a little bit, borrow there a little bit. I integrate, I modify, I use science to um, revise support or support whatever's been done out there. Uh, United Kingdom, uh, my favorite is uh, Harry or Harry Wilson. Uh, he was coach of uh, Steve Ovet, Julian Goder, and Wendy Sly, and a n- number of others. I liked his overall approach because uh, he, he balanced his training. It wasn't well lopsided. It wasn't just do a bunch of mileage. Uh, he integrated uh, other forms of training uh, beyond uh, on distance running. Um, if you look at the training schedules of people like Steve Ovet, Goder, Wendy Sly, and so on, you'll, you'll notice that throughout the year they had some forms of at least medium quality. Um, and then, of course, during the uh, race prep and during the season, they were doing more high intensity, but they never got away from their distance work. They never got away from doing things like hill running or anything like that. And, and that, that resonates with me. That's, that's exactly uh, the type of approach that I uh, believe works, uh, is best for the overall, overall and well-rounded development of athletes. And I do want athletes, you know, in America, uh, we have a, you know, a little bit different term. We, we generally just call them runners if they're runners and so on. But, uh, track and field over here is not called athletics, but 
Um, I believe an athlete is somebody who's got comprehensive abilities, not just a narrow focus that they can just run six minutes per mile, you know, or whatever. I want them to have agility more, much like a football player. And football is in soccer or football, uh, basketball over here in the United States where you're moving in multiple directions. Um, other people that I look up to over the years are Bill Bowerman and Bill Dellinger at the University of Oregon because they had a multi multifaceted, multi-directional, multi-component uh, type of a training approach. In uh, Australia, um, Pat Closey, big time influencer, um, uh, more on the philosophy side of things. Uh, you know, my keep the ball rolling mentality, my philosophy, my mantra is very much in line with Pat's, uh, uh, Coach Closey's, uh, you know, basically train with uh, abusing yourself, consistently do the right types of training. Uh, no need to really crush every workout out there. You know, once in a while, it's okay to push a bit, but, you know, just don't go out there and try to be a superhero. That's at least that's my term super. Don't, don't be a superhero. Once in a while, you can push a workout for the bat, but the vast majority of workouts should be under control and you should be able to walk away saying I could have done quite a bit more. I like to use an 80% rule. Um, you, your volume and a particular intensity uh, should not top 80% most cases. So if you can do uh, 10 times a K at three minutes, eight of them is enough. That's 80%. Yeah. If you can do 10 400s in 62, well, eight of them is probably enough to really make you very tired, uh, create a stimulus so that you have a, a benefit, um, but not wipe you out so much you can't come back and do the next day's running. Yeah, absolutely. Um, someone in Europe who we sort of, well, I'm a bit obsessed with is obviously the Ingebrigtsons and their sort of father is their coach and their philosophy is... No, no, everything. no, no, that's not true. That's not true. Well, they, his father's the coach, but the father is not the one that came up with the information. Yeah, most Some of it's... physiologists who've advised them. Yeah. What? How do you feel about <laughs> their sort of... It's also inspired a bit from like um, Canova and... and other coaches in the past as well, isn't it? Their sort of training. But how, how do you sort of feel about their well, approach? Uh, do you mean to Jelta's approach? You mean the physiologist that's telling them what to do? Yeah. 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 Jelta is the coach, the brilliance. Tajelta, Hal Garud, and about four others are brilliant exercise physiologists in Norway. They have nearly unlimited funding from their government to do sports science research. America stopped doing that in 1989. That's why we haven't had hardly any developments in physiology in America, because everything yep. got all the grant money, all the money from the federal government got focused on just disease and, and all kinds of stuff that really has nothing to do with developing athletes. So you, uh, you know, if you're a physiologist like me, finish up your doctorate, you're, you're looking for you're looking for the best information you can get. And, and you look to Italy, you look to Germany, you look to the uh, Scandinavian countries, you look to Japan, because those countries have funding that goes into sports science development. In, in uh, Norway, you have several physiologists who have been advising um, the cross-country skiers for about 25 years. Um, and it's one of the reasons why their cross-country skiing is so amazing. And it's not just that the athletes do a lot of work. Athletes in cross-country skiing around the world do an enormous amount of work. They put runners to shame, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's, it's the devotion to developing a cross-country skiing in Norway that really helped uh, develop the methodology for training runners. And... Uh, to the credit of uh, Inga Bretson's father, he he went to those who could test his to test his young sons and uh, tell them, you know, what their VO2 max is, what their threshold is, uh, get some advisement on training, and then periodically bring them back and get them retested. His uh, Philippe was tested for a period of at least ten years straight by the same physiologist and given advice. Uh, um, by that physiologist on what to do and whether the training was working. People like Marius Backen is another one in Norway that, that helped influence.
Collins, uh, Mr. Ingebretson, Marios, um, Marius, um, got information from physiologists, went and got testing, believed a lot in lactate threshold. Um, and so I would suggest that the uh, major runner influencer for the Ingebretson family was Marius Back. And I, I, I think he needs uh, needs uh, some credit for, for making making people think of a different approach over there in his country. You know, yeah. runners were not listening to cross-country skiers or listening to physiologists until Backen came along. Yeah. And in um, familiarity with like your coaching as well, your, I guess, critical velocity is something that you have sort of taken, you know, sort of brought more people more awareness towards it and that sort of coaching methodology how does that sort of relate to the same principles of making sure people still have more and i've heard you speak on it a bit more but i was just wondering if you could sort of give a brief or in-depth overview of critical velocity training as a whole and sort of why you choose that over the likes of maybe threshold or maybe vo2 max obviously including them as well but why do you think critical velocity is so important yeah yeah before i start into that, I just want to make sure people realize that I don't use just, I don't assign just critical velocity. I mean, no coach assigns just one uh, training pace, training intensity. That's just foolishness. Yeah. <laughs> it's just one of many, many parts of my uh, training approach. However, it's a, an integral part, um, primarily because it's, it's the best intensity in my view for uh, developing the lactate threshold velocity. It's better than lactate threshold. You get more bang for your buck, you get more uh, return on, on the time invested. And then secondarily, besides the fact that you improve the physiology, you actually improve the neuromechanics of uh, you know energy production. You wanna reduce the amount of energy cost required to travel at a given speed. And one of the ways to do that is simulate the mechanics um, required for racing velocity. Until you're up near critical velocity, you're really not using any mechanics uh, that resembles track racing. Yeah. Okay, so if you do a biomechanical analysis, which I did in 1989, uh, 1990, when I had biomechanics classes, uh, along with all my exercise physiology classes from my um, master's degree, um, I noticed uh, measuring the angles, the torque angles, hip, knee, and ankle in particular, that the difference between threshold and critical velocity was about 3.5 to 3.9%. The amount of torque required, the amount of force through those range of motions uh, was sig significantly higher even yet, close to up to 17%. So uh, I, it begged the question, to me at least, uh, how does this resemble track racing? You know, threshold CV versus track racing. Well, when I put people on the, on the treadmill and, I, and I, I filmed them and I did, put the data into the machine and it kicked out the angles, 5K was almost the same as CV. The only difference between CV and the, the mechanics and the angles um, between CV and 5K pace, and the people I had in my study were 14 to 15 minute 5K runners, males, and then I had uh, 16 to 18 minute females. The only difference was the rate of, of turnover, the cadence. Yeah. Well, so basically, we had the same types of angles at CV as we do, did at 5K. The only difference is we were turning the legs over quicker at 5K. Now, uh, I thought that was quite interesting, really. And if you looked at threshold, was slower, closer to a roughly one-hour race pace, um, you know, the mechanics were considerably different than they were, say, in 5K racing. So my, my thought was, if improving efficiency is such a big deal, meaning lowering energy cost or lowering the oxygen cost as a surrogate of energy cost, we need to do a lot more CV or quicker type training if we're trying to improve the efficiency of our athletes on the track, whether they're running 10K, 5K, 3K, 1500 steeple, 800. We need to make sure that 
whatever we assign as coaches is going to get the most return for improving the, uh, their efficiency. And, you know, if you think, if you look at economy studies, economy is a measure of how much oxygen uh, it costs to travel at a given speed or for a given distance. We know that economy doesn't change overnight. It takes a long, long time to reduce the amount of oxygen that, it, that you uh, need, that you consume at a given speed. So if you want to reduce the amount of oxygen, you, at uh, you know three minutes a kilometer, that might take you a year and a half before you see any kind of statistically significant changes based on traditional methods. You certainly aren't going to improve your economy for three minutes per kilometer out there running at four minutes per kilometer, which is kind of the standard distance pace for that type of athlete. You can run 10K at three minutes a kilometer. Okay, so they start improving their mechanics at about three, uh, 3.30 per kilometer. Then it starts to improve, and over time, they reduce their oxygen costs. You know, the big diff difference, even all the way down to the 800, is lowering the metabolic cost to travel at that speed. So, yeah, it's nice to build a big engine. You think of it as VO2 max, how much oxygen you can uh, move down to your muscles, you know, primarily attributable to your heart. 75% of it is your heart, okay? But that tap, that tops off, you know, your VO2 max tops off very quickly within a couple of years of very serious training. You know, take a look at Paula Radcliffe's a good example. I mean, she hit her peak VO2 max at age 19. Dr. Andy Jones, one of the best physiologists in the world, there, you're privileged in the UK to have him. He and Brumley, man, gosh, they're brilliant. Okay, he studied Jones when she, uh, um, Paula Radcliffe, uh, when she was young, all the way for the next 10 years. She didn't, she didn't improve her VO2 max in her 20s. Actually, it's, it lowered just before she ran her world record in the marathon, which I actually think was probably legit. Okay, her economy, economy was the only thing that improved. She was using about, I forget, something like almost 20% less oxygen 10 years later from 19 to 30, uh, 29. She just continued to get better and better at getting the same speed with less oxygen cost. Okay, and you look at her coach and what he assigned, it was a balance of training, it was, it was cyclical. He didn't get away from anything. It, it definitely was demonstrating that uh, from the lab results that the improvement was coming. Uh, brilliant job of coaching, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, go on, Josh. I was just going to say, obviously, it's it's fast. It, you know, it's so fascinating to be able to speak to somebody with such a deep understanding of, of the science behind uh, running and the mechanics of running and, and how to get better. I was just wondering if you could, as a as a as a practical coach as well as a scientist. If you could sort of distill your principles of training into, I don't know, how you, whether it's three short sentences or three bullet points or how, how, however you would do it, what would you say it would be? First, you have to balance your training. And by balance, I mean, don't, get, don't lopsided it in one direction too much. Don't just do distance work for weeks on end. That is just plain foolishness. Okay, yes, you will build a huge amount of aerobic ability, but you will completely ne neglect all mechanics and therefore you won't reduce the oxygen cost and the kilocaloric cost or the kilojoules cost at faster speed. So you need to have some sort of short-term quality in there, even if you decide you're gonna do a bunch of distance. I don't care if you're running, doing sprints or running short hills, doing fartlek pickups, You've got to have something in there that addresses the nervous system's requirement to um, generate force with a little, with the least amount of energy possible. And you got to work on mechanics where you're landing your foot underneath, you know, underneath your hips instead of way out in front and landing on your heels, or you're tightening up your upper body and swaying back and forth, which is what distance running, running ends up doing for most people. They end up trying to become economical because they got to go for a lot of distance. 
So they tighten up their upper body and they start swinging and there's one shoulders leading in front of the other. Well, that's absolutely awful mechanics for racing. Yeah. Right. So you counteract that by balancing the training. And then other things that you need to focus on. Don't get away from the stamina component. I define aerobic endurance and aerobic stamina differently. Aerobic endurance is the ability to run at a lower intensity for a long time. Stamina is that intermediate intensity. I think of it as basically CV threshold and tempo, okay, or basically half an hour to an hour to two hours. That pretty much, uh, that pretty much sums up the CV threshold tempo. Half hour, one hour, two hour for a well-trained person. A novice Joe who hasn't run or Jane hasn't run that much. Well, they can't even run two hours. So obviously that doesn't apply. But, uh, you know, the vast majority of people, if if they just focus on making that, that stamina a central component, every weekly or biweekly as a training session that develops their stamina, they will have continued progress over the long term. If they get away from it, they get away from this half hour, one hour, two hour racing speed type of approach, they'll quickly lopsite, they'll quickly develop abilities like anaerobic capacity, okay, speed endurance, or slow end endurance. And what happens is, essentially, they will, they will stall out. Three to six weeks later, they can't improve. No matter what their repetitions are, how fast they become, they can't translate it to the racing environment. They can't hold it. Just because your rep times are getting faster doesn't mean you're going to run faster in a race. I'm sorry, but that's one of the biggest fallacies ever. Oh, my 400s are faster than they were before. Okay, well, that, that works fine for about four weeks. After that, just because your 400 times drop doesn't mean you're going to run faster in the race. Sorry, it doesn't. Now, if your repeat 1K is 1,200, it's 1,600 uh, uh, miles are all getting better. Okay, your race is going to, race times are going to improve and uh, just, and your 400s are just adding, adding a little bit to the, to the mix. But if you're, if you can't run repeat miles faster than you did before, you're just not going to do well. I don't care how fast your speed is. I don't know how great your anaerobic capacity is. You will just slow down in the race. Yeah, a lot, lot, right? lot of times in races, you're, you're hurting, especially over 5K and 3K on track. You, it's that effort where it's uncomfortable. And I think, like you said, those miles, Ks, 1200s, sort of at that pace, it helps you know what that pace feels like for sustained effort. And that's a yeah 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 to thing. some degree i agree with you on that but also i just think that you just you can't fake the fitness yeah you know you, you, if your mile repeats were last year and you were doing them in five minutes and you ran in a 10k and you ran 31 minutes this year you, you can't and you did five reps you know and this year you're at 505 507 sorry but you're like 3140 shape i I don't care how fast your 200, 300, 400, all that are, you're going to be faster. You're going to be slower in your 10K. Yeah. And for the most part, it even applies to the middle distance races. You know, if you're a 1500 meter mile guy, uh, last year you could do 10, 400s in 60 seconds and you could do uh, six repeat miles in 435. Okay. That, and you ran a four flat mile. Okay. That's your reference. You come this year and you're running 59, but you're not 435, you're at 447. Sorry, man, you're not going to run a four-minute mile. Yeah, You're just not. You're, you're basically either low in your VO2 max or more probable is that you're low in your threshold ability. You need to go out there and just do a bunch of 1Ks at CV, which is roughly half an hour racing speed, and do that on a regular basis. And once you get those down... It doesn't even take that many fast 400s. I mean, I've had I've had guys on my team only run four 400s. That's all they did in practice, and they ran a sub four minute mile. Yeah, but their repeat one Ks, 1200s, repeat miles were all rock solid, or the continuous tempo runs five six miles were rock solid. You know. Yeah, a thing I've noticed as well when when you're sort of doing Ks, miles, longer stuff, and then you go down to so let's say do a 400 session. 
most of the time you can manage it well uh, with based off how fit you are. But if you're doing good 400, 300, 500 meter sessions, it's quite hard to go up to the miles and try and trying to perform well in that session the first time round. I think it's a different type of fitness, isn't it? Really? It certainly is. Yeah. And it's it's all well and good discussing, saying, running at these paces. But a lot of people in the world, I think a lot of people apply to this. They can't hold back sometimes and they can't remain consistent paces. And most of the time it's like, oh, I felt good today. So I ran quicker. And a lot of people don't really understand the need to run at controlled paces. Do you have any tips or reasons why people should take that into more consideration? Don't be your own coach. That's have someone else be accountable. Yeah, very few people can coach themselves because they have no objectivity, right? You're, you know, research and neuroscience researchers show that humans are unable to make decisions based on logic. We always make decisions based on emotions, okay? That was not the belief for decades until about 2001 when neuroscientists proved it with PNMRI where they put people in uh, machines and they inject them with dyes, essentially your forebrain, which controls your emotions, right, is involved for every single emotion, which, which is why if you have to make an important decision, you better calm down. You can't make a, a good decision when you're all, you know, elevated emotionally. Yep. Okay, but that's why you need objectivity. That's why you need to coach. And if you're going to self-coach, don't make the decision on the day of your workout, what you're going to do. Plan it out in advance and make that decision three days before. Friday, I'm going to do six times a K at three minutes and six 200s in 30 seconds because that's based on my current fitness. Okay? Not some pie in the sky goal. It's realistic. I can do it. it I can do it without having to gut myself. It's, it's not easy, but it's something I can do without gutting myself. And then stick to it on race day or on training day. Just go out there and run your repeats at three minutes and do your 200s at 30 seconds and walk away knowing you could have ran faster if you had to or you could have done more if you had to. And know that, to, that, that two days later, you can go out there and do that 16-mile long run, which is on your schedule, and that was supposed to be at 6.30 pace. You know, you don't want to go into that long run with your legs absolutely toast because you push that interval work to work out too hard. And now you're trying to run 630 pace. Okay. And your legs are sore and you're, and now you're using bad mechanics. You're landing on your heels and you're swaying all over the place because you're stiff everywhere. All you're doing is teaching your body to use bad mechanics and use more oxygen to travel at a given speed. Now you completely defeated your purpose of reducing energy cost. Okay, do that workout under control and know there's one piece of the puzzle. That one workout doesn't tell, prove anything to you. A series of good workouts, a series of good long runs. Now that proves something. You know, any any coach worth their weight and salt will tell you that. You know, it's 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 you know three, four, five, six weeks in a row doing appropriate uh, workouts, being able to check off the box, got that one done, check off the box, got that one done, down, down, down. You do six weeks in a row like that, guarantee you're in a good spot. You're going to race well. Yeah. Yeah. Consistency is the most important thing, like you've said as well. It's well, the thing well, that matters. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me stop you there for a second. I'm sorry I keep interrupting. That's a it's problem okay. with the Zooms. Consistent, people do consistently do the wrong things, okay? It's not consistency. You got to always, you always got to add that little consistently doing the right type of training or the balance training, which goes back to the, the response I gave to Josh when he asked, you know, how can you sum it up? I want you to have balanced training. Well, you can't have balanced training, not only just in the design, but in your uh, completion of it, if you're overdoing any one aspect. If you can't do your long run because your legs are so darn sore, then okay, that's not balanced training. And if you can't do your repeat miles because you overcooked your, you know, your 200s and you're walking around with a flared up Achilles, okay, well, that's not balanced 
it's training. And if you can't get out the door and do an easy hour run the day after an interval workout, that's not balanced training if you had to take the day off because you're so thrashed. Yeah, I, I mean, that's great advice. And I, um, as, uh, as Alfie knows pretty well, often guilty of uh, doing my workouts a bit too quick. And it's, uh, you know, I can find myself the next day feeling I'm a little bit, I wish I hadn't quite pushed it as hard. It felt good at the time, my pride, but today I'm getting yeah. ready to do a long run. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill i feel a bit sore so you yeah, always that's right, regret Josh. it you always regret it yeah we yeah you always regret when you can't get back and do the next key workout then you're like oh, man, yeah I blew it i blew it i let my ego get the best of me <laughs> we've all done it just just because i'm his coach you know and and has a lot of knowledge about this sort of thing doesn't mean i didn't screw it up myself a whole bunch of times yeah well that's good to know that's good to know <laughs> um I, I just wondered whether i know we've talked a lot about your um training philosophy I, and you know you're a pretty good runner as a, as a young man as well so i'm just interested to know um how you ended up getting into into coaching well, I got into coaching mostly because I got compartment syndrome in both of my lower legs, my calves. And it really started inhibiting my ability to train my, just after 19 years of age. And uh, like a week after my 19th birthday, I had surgery on them. Um, they were so, the condition was so advanced that I have permanent nerve damage, particularly in my right. It's my, my feet are always numb. Right. I, I can't feel my I can't feel my big toe on my right at all. Um, I can't push off. After that, I couldn't push off. I couldn't I couldn't run with uh, any kind of consistency at, at, without having to take you know time off and do cross training because it was a shot. And uh, you know the, the orthopedic surgeon said you know it's uh, it's probably hereditary, but your running training contributed to it. Um, I think it was for me starting in uh, probably freshman in high school when I was 14, I played a lot of basketball. I was in a basketball team and I wasn't able to have shoes that fit me well because there were no such thing as wide shoes for in basketball. Everything, everybody wore Converse shoes that were all narrow and my feet hung over by, you know, a long, a long way. So uh, anyway, long story short is I started getting into coaching because I couldn't be the runner I wanted to be simply because I couldn't do the training volume I needed. I had trouble going over basically 35 or 40 miles a week. Um, there's no way a person uh, who wants to be, say, a good 1500 meter or 5K type guy could, you know, I ran just over 15 minutes in a 5K and right around four minutes in the 1500, basically off of four and five mile runs. Um, that was in my twenties and when I didn't even do that with any interval training. The only thing I did was I played basketball once a week, that was it. So I, I always wonder what, what could have happened. You know, Maybe if I'd run 70 or 75 miles a week and had no injury, maybe I could have been pretty decent. Um, and obviously you've now, uh, you coach of the, the Tin Man Elite team. What's, what's the relationship like with, with your, with your athletes? Because we, and the reason I, we interviewed, um, Jermaine Coleman last year and he, he described you as the wizard. <laughs> was, um, I like Jermaine. He's a good dude. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you should. Jermaine's in the best shape of his life right right now. By the way, we just got we're down in Phoenix and he was crushing it. And I'm like, man, you're at a whole new level, Jermaine. He goes, Coach, I never, I couldn't imagine being at this level before. 
I'm stronger than ever. <laughs> Holy cow, I can't wait to race. So unfortunately, you know, as a steepler, he may have a limited number of opportunities, maybe one or two at the most this entire uh, spring. We don't have anything at all this, uh, that we know about for steeple yet. And uh, so, you know, that's that's the sad. But I told him, I said, dude, you, you're easily in sub four minute mile shape right now. And I think you can run probably 1328 to 1331 in the 5,000, you know, which is a considerable improvement over where he's been. Um, I'm sorry, I got to do grass. I, I just really like Jermaine and his work ethic and his toughness. Uh, he's from Manchester, you know. Yeah, he was, he was a great guy for us to chat to. Um, yeah. I have to say, I've, I've never, obviously, I've ne never run a steeplechase in my life. I think that's something you used to run as now, but it just looks really Don't hard. recommend it. It's not nice. <laughs> I had to stop it's hard. Achilles issues. It's hard. It's hard. You better have a strong, strong body and be able to take a lot of load because when you jump off that, uh, you know, water, you're at the water jump and you're laying hard like that, man. That's a lot of trauma. That's I don't know what it is. I'd like to put a force plate in the water pit, but I'm betting it's about four to five times body weight. Yeah. You know, when you land. I I um, had my old coach, let's just say he wasn't the most knowledgeable coach on the planet. And I was doing steeple and I actually did a steeple chase with Achilles tendonitis. And I was then out for about six months with Achilles pain because I did a yeah. race and I ended up, but towards the end of the race, I didn't want to pull out because of pride again and ended up just jumping into the deepest part of the water to try and get rid of the impact and uh -huh. it, yeah steeplechase is a, is a tricky one especially for people with achilles or plantar fascia or any sort of lower leg impact injuries specifically as well yeah it's not nice what was your question josh about you mentioned jermaine but i don't know if i even answer your question uh, uh no, no sorry but I, my, my, I did mention jermaine my question was um, just what your relationship is like with your, with the athletes, particularly obviously the Tin Man guys, because we we see a lot of them on on social media and Instagram and uh, and stuff. So that's where that's what I was asking. I'm not sure how to answer that. To be honest, uh, I got a good relationship with the guys. I mean, uh, you know, uh, they listen to what I say and they try to do the best they can. I mean, sure they're gonna make some mistakes here and there. I know. I can't watch them 24 hours a day and I don't live in their house. So, um, you know, if somebody gets a little impulsive and wants to play a pickup game of football, you know, soccer in the backyard, they may end up paying a price. And that's happened. And that has happened. Or they pick play some, I don't know, they go hiking. <laughs> and next thing I know, uh, somebody's got a sore Achilles or a sore IT band, you know, I'm like, um, you know, I would not have <laughs> supported that. Yeah, but they get bored, you know, they want to do something different, you know, something variety in their life. But unfortunately, to be a great athlete, you have to have a pretty boring life. It's got to be about doing the same activities over and over, day after day, if you want to become great at it. Uh, in fact, I would suggest one of the hallmarks of the champion is the ability to deal with the boredom, the tediousness dealing with all the little bitty activities that support your running dealing dealing with the ability to delay gratification is a huge part of being successful whether it's a runner yeah. or in your relationships or your professional life or academics it's all the same thing you know researchers in psychology back in the 50s we're curious as about this uh, delayed gratification phenomenon. So they put some kids in a room. There's a table and there's some jelly beans on the table. And I said, okay, Sarah, okay, Joey. If you wait until we get back, you can have 10 jelly beans. If you don't wait till we come back, you can have five jelly beans. It's your choice. We'll be back. So they went outside, they're looking at cameras, the kids sitting in there, twiddling thumb, looking around, waiting, waiting, waiting. And the impulsive ones, they didn't even last three minutes. They were eating those jelly beans, okay? Uh, the ones that had delayed gratification, the ability to hold off until somebody came back, 
than 10% of the kids. When they tracked him over the next 20 years, guess who was the most successful? The kids. Wasn't even, yeah, wasn't even, even close. Fun. The ones that delayed gratification were like three times more successful. It's a lesson for all of us to learn, right? Don't try to see, don't try to have fast times in your workout just to, you know, feed your ego. That's, that's, that's not delaying gratification. Once you delay the gratification and wait until six weeks from now and crush your race, you get out there, you run a fast time in the race, you perform well against your opponents because you waited to have your ultimate effort at that race. You, you yeah. have some very good high school runners. How do you sort of con make sure they're aware and controlled that running is the next 15 years plan, not how fast they can run this year or next year? How do you sort of ensure that that's their methodology? And Yeah, that's, that's it's too difficult for them to think about, right? So it's my job as a coach to make sure that training is age appropriate, background appropriate, balanced, you know, allows for not just the work, but rest. And I don't mean taking day off. I mean, as in running really slowly. So I keep track, you know, I keep track of what their pace is. I'm very explicit about everything as a coach, whether it's my 10 man lead or high level high school runners and so on. I'm explicit. Look, today you don't run faster than XYZ pace. And I give the reason why. And I think if people have the reason why they realize that you're not just making this up out of the blue, that there's a purpose. And if you hold them accountable, then, then I think they, they start to learn that you are paying attention. It's just like a teacher in a classroom. You know, if the teacher holds you accountable and gives you direct specific feedback about your performance, you realize that a, what the teacher said initially uh, matters because they're going to follow up on it. B, they have a purpose for what they told you in class. And C, they're showing you how what you're doing links with something in the future. That's a big part of it. If you see a purpose for working hard on your mathematics because it's going to help you be able to do something down the road, then you're willing to invest your effort and time and struggle through it. Right. Otherwise, you got to figure out some way on your own to be motivated on a consistent basis. And the truth is motivation wanes. It does. It's not steady. More important is self-discipline. Developing habits of self-discipline is far more important than relying on motivation. Motivation is like 10% of the game. 90% of the game is self-discipline, doing what is necessary. But if you have a collaboration with a coach or a teacher or a parent, some sort of mentor that knows what pitfalls to avoid, if you go in this direction, you're going to have at some point something that's going to trip you up. You're going to have an injury. You're going to get chronically fatigued. You're going to lose your motivation. And never, never ever discount the enjoyment factor. If you're not enjoying it, you're just going to start not caring about doing whatever training is required. You're not even going to have that much motivation on race day when it's easy to normally be motivated. That's a sure tell sign. If you're having trouble getting motivated on race day, oh my gosh, something's wrong. Yeah, you're yeah. training too hard. You're not training. You don't have diversity in your training. You don't have support mechanisms, whether it's your coach or, or your significant other or your parents. You got to have people in your life that care about you because you don't want to travel this journey alone. I'm telling you, you, you travel with people that care, guarantee you feel like there's something meaningful in what you're doing. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's great advice. I think we've covered a lot of things here that are probably not just great advice for running, but great advice for life as well, to be honest. Um, I just wondered, because we, we're coming sort of towards the end of the podcast, and, and I know perhaps some of the listeners might want to, to know a bit more about you. So, um, and I know I've got a couple of questions as well, but I'm just wondering, when you're not coaching and, uh, you know, writing PhDs, what do, you, what do you do to relax? 
Well, I'm a family guy. I'm a family man. So I do spend a lot of time in the evenings, especially when I have the luxury and uh, uh, do stuff with my family. And um, sometimes it's just simply watching television or playing games at the kitchen table or uh, wrestling with my son. <laughs> I always let him win, but he, he doesn't know that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, I do like to go out outdoors. I really love the outdoors. Uh, I think when I'm done with my finish, when I finish my PhD, I'm going to have a little more time to get outdoors and go hiking. And I love bicycling. I, I love cycling around the countryside, but it's a little more dangerous now with everybody on their phone. I'm like, I'm worried I'm going to get run over. Um, so I might just take up mountain biking or something like that. So I can get out on the trails. I don't have to worry about the car, the automobiles running me over. Yeah, just, um, big bolt, just massive rocks and really steep hills that that's... yeah i used to do a lot of skiing uh I, I love downhill skiing but uh i've had my hips replaced so i'm not so sure i can uh, do that as well i probably will go out and try it again next winter has it's been years i used to rock climb i can't really do that anymore because of my hips rock climbing was really exciting for me and of course, playing basketball and stuff like that. And I love music. Uh, I really love music. Those are some side interests. What, what type of music do you particularly like listening to? You know, um, quality is quality in my view. I, I've never been just limited on one type of uh, genre, you know. Um, I like a lot of the, I like a lot of high quality um music that comes out you know um from say seattle or portland someplace like that um i don't know what the equivalent is over in your country i like a lot of old school stuff like the eagles and journey um they were classics in my view uh, i even like i got on my phone i got the beatles you know um i like uh, even stuff like songs from Peter, Paul, and Mary, and people like that, you know, that, I don't know, I guess quality is quality, I guess it also, it depends upon the mood you want to, you know, you want to be in, if you want to be mellow, you turn, you switch to some other, some type of music to put you in that state of mood, state of mind. Yeah, well, I'll just say, I second the Eagles, they're a bit before my time, but I absolutely love the Eagles. <laughs> oh man, they're a classic, I got to see them once, just, you know, they came out of retirement, I got to see them once. And that was one of the best things in my life. There are some other groups that I like from that era. I love Queen. I think they were, you know, certain like certain types, certain songs they had that were cool. Um, I like some people that um, song um, groups that people don't even probably recognize them. Rush and Asia, they were good groups back in my day. Uh, Foreigner, I love Foreigner music. Foreigner four albums, the best ever in my view. So. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm i very uncultured when it comes to music. I listen to basically one artist. And then other than that, like when you mentioned like Journey, the only song that comes to mind is Don't Stop Believing," which is yeah, that's an absolute a good one. timeless song. Um, that's right. I, right. I, I wanted to ask as well. Yeah, you know, you need to have some diversity in your music, man. It's sort of like training. It's like training there, buddy, right? Remember I said be balanced? Listen yeah. to more than one type of music. Also, listen to more than one type. If you're into politics or whatever it is, don't listen to just one sin or one type of approach. Listen to more than one because you don't know if you're being fooled into thinking that's reality. Yeah. Be one little small snapshot of somebody's perceived reality. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is quite a deep question. And I always ask this on the podcast. Um, and I would never be able to answer it, so don't feel any pressure to do so. But I guess for you, it can be looked at two different ways as well. What, what would you say is your best accomplishment as Tom Schwartz? And what would you say your best accomplishment as Coach Schwartz is um, in your life so far? I don't know if it's accomplishment, uh, how I want to say this first one, but um, convincing my wife to marry me. I think, think that was a pretty good one because uh, she's been my rock. Uh, she's been there through ups and downs. She, you know, when I, I nearly died five years ago of a brain tumor and uh, 
waking up in the intensive care unit and seeing her face. Let me tell you something. <laughs> that that put my place on earth and who I who I need to who who I need to uh, who I need to care about into perspective right away. She's been there. So uh, as an individual, it's the people in my life that matter, uh, not my achievements. My my wife and my son. I have a lot of good family members and I have a lot of good relationships with, with coaches and, and athletes around the world. I, I consider the coaches that I, um, that I see attract me to that I communicate with on the phone uh, or texting uh, as my colleagues. I, I don't see them as enemies. I don't view them as anything other than exceptional at what they do and their contributors to the sport that I love. Um, I don't want to cut any coaches down ever if I can help it. I want to support them and what they're trying to do. They may have a different approach, but that's fine. I have a different approach than them. And in terms of uh, coaching, I think changing perhaps the perspective of, of how running is viewed. Um, my goal has been to make people into the same community, whether they're on the opposite side of the world or in a different running club or whatever it is, I want people to be aware that we all love the same sport. I want to bring people together. I think to me as a coach, that probably will be my greatest achievement when I leave because um, times come and go. People will break records, achievements, uh, accolades, all that. That that can be replaced by somebody comes along who's better, who does it, does it at a higher level. But you know what you do to help the sport and help people to me that that's everlasting and I, I know we have to we have to let you go imminently and if i may just ask you one more question before before we do and it's a question that we ask the athletes and other guests that we have on the podcast if you could change one thing about the sport and when we say that, you know, about track and track and field athletics, running more generally, what, what would it be? Um, we need to make sure that it's a, regarded as a professional sport. The organization of it needs to be continually upgraded so that the general per, people, the people in our general community recognize it as a legit top level sport. So... Uh, there are lots of little things that we can do. First of all, we got to make sure that people know that there there is some money in it, because right now, Jane Jane and Joe next door looks at at football and says those guys make my z millions of pounds. It's a so they put they that's a real sport. Nobody knows how much the athletes in our sport make for money, the ones that actually do make money. And until that's resolved, until it comes out, how much people make, we'll never have more. Yeah. We won't. Look at it in America, we have football, basketball, and baseball. And until the early 1970s, the athletes in those sports, 95% of them barely made enough money to survive. In fact, they had to work outside jobs when they weren't in their competitive season to be able to put food on the table and pay the rent or the mortgage in their house. Okay. It wasn't until the early 1970s when a couple of athletes who were actually getting paid some money, let it slip out when they were drunk, how much they made. And it became, and we didn't have social media and go viral, but they went straight to their agents and said, you said I couldn't make more than 15,000 a year. That guy over there just makes 125. And I ran more yards per carry in football, let's say. I ran more yards per carry than he did. How come he's making, you know, 10 times, seven times I'm what I'm making? So what happened was in a short period of time, within three years, salaries in professional sports tripled. And six years, they went up 11 times because it got leaked out what some of the individuals made. And what happened is when young people in their teens came out of the university level and joined the sport and they had better accomplishments 
at the university level than their predecessors, then they could get more money for their contracts because it was known what other people in the past had made. Right now, nobody knows. Until we get money in the sport and until people know how much money is being made by the top individuals, will always be an amateur sport. Yeah, I'm from speaking from internal points of view to some people who get paid as an athlete, the, the difference is ridiculous between some people and other people. Like it's it would be it's uncomparison. Like half the people who are very, very talented runners who are looking to get into the Olympics, well, most of them won't get enough to live off. And then other people astronomically amount more. I bet if we I bet if we interviewed a thousand people who are into track and field, they won't know that Usain Bolt made 30 plus million dollars in his career. Mm. I have yet, I have yet to find one individual that knew that or even close to that. Yeah, okay. Anywhere near that. If you don't yeah, but, but it wasn't publicized until after his career was over and it got leaked out. All right. Nobody knows that in the United States of America, the top 11 top 11 income earners are females in our sport yeah nobody knows how much the average make i've i've heard from agents who slip it out you know you know i figure it out because they can piece two and two together because i'm i'm listening to one agent say this another agent say this and they don't give you the direct information but i can figure out that okay this is what they negotiated for because they had to negotiate more than this one than this one. And then I find out information and I start piecing together. I'm like, okay, this is what the average makes. Yeah. You know, but we need money in our sport until we do. And don't, and people think, oh, well, we just got to get more sponsors. No, that's not the first. We will get sponsors right away once the sponsors think that it's a professional sport. How is it that in the United States of America, Soccer, football, what you call football, was a non-existent sport in our country in the 1970s and 1980s when I was going through school. Non-existent. The only time you played it was for two weeks in physical education, once a year. There were no soccer leagues, no soccer clubs, no professional, nothing. And then all of a sudden in the 1980s, people who love soccer said, let's make this a, a real legit sport. We can compete against Europe. They invested a lot of money into it. They they get made this organization. They figured out ways of marketing our their sport, and within five or six years, they far surpassed you know that track and field and athletics in in the United States. There are kids everywhere in America who want to be soccer players because they know that Messi makes this, or somebody else in the American professional soccer makes this amount of money. Their parents are all for it and send them to camps pay for personal coaching because they think their kid can might make $250,000 American, you know, signing. Yeah. Why is it soccer now is a bigger sport in America than track and field, which has been here since like 1896. Yeah. It's That's sad. Yeah. Also, yeah. When you think about it as well, you think about influential people in track and field. And really, you could probably list them on, on, on two hands. The amount of people who actually impacted thousands of people with Prefontaine. I'd say the likes of Tin Man now are doing that. Tin Man Elite that's, are doing it. Yeah. And that's, that's really, the as they, that they've helped a lot of people in the last few years. And you spoke about people looking at running in a different way. I think Tin Man are definitely at the forefront of that. Um, that's right. With monetization, with influence, with everything. Um, which is That's obviously right. great. Make it a popular sport. Make it so that every kid who's 12 years old wants to be in the sport. You yeah. know, make it exciting. That's that's what we got to do. Right now it's a bunch of old fogies who, you know, it, it used it's starting to change because the Tin Man and a, and a few others that are following suit. Okay, hopefully we got the ball rolling, you know. I noticed, for example, some of the Bowerman people at Nike, they're doing a lot of the stuff that we, we've been doing for quite a while. I'm not, I don't resent them at all for doing it. I'm glad they're doing it, right? People want to know what Shelby Houlihan is like. 
yeah. People want to know the personalities, right? They want to know more about Mo Farah. They want to know more about these people. What are they? What music does Mo like? What does he do with his free time? Yeah, I don't know if you'd seen over in the states. Mo Mo just recently uh, was involved in a reality TV show in the UK called I'm oh, really? Get Me Out of Here. And so he was, and it, it's a massive, sh- it's a massive show. Obviously, nothing to do with athletics. Mostly, they just eat creepy crawlies and stuff. Uh, uh, yeah for entertainment but you know it brought the top probably the best known athlete in the uk right onto people's tv screens right in his living room um that's good well uh, um coach tom we're we're pretty much at the end of the an end of our podcast and i know we have to let you go so um i just say thank you very much for for coming on uh it's been a hugely interesting um conversation if Uh, um Really if anybody great. wants any coaching, you know, just go to my website, tinmancoach.com. Thank you very much. All righty. Take care, fellas. Nice to meet Thank you. Thank you. You too. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.